All right, before we jump into this morning's sermon, quick announcement about another group of sermons that we are uh, working on for next year. Uh, we are planning a series for 2019 that we need your help to create, a series that we're calling Asking for a Friend, playing off the popular hashtag when people want to ask an embarrassing or self-incriminating question, but they try and act like it's not for them but for a friend. They are asking for a friend. Can you throw water balloons at kids prank knocking your door, asking for a friend? Does a tube of rich crackers and a can of cheese whiz count as a meal, hashtag? Asking for a friend. Where can I listen to all a Nickelback for free online? Hashtag asking for a friend. Would it be bad to watch Heart of Dixie for a third time? Asking for a friend. Is it okay to buy a lottery ticket if I promise to tithe all my winnings? So the idea is hopefully we all have friendships with people who are either not Christians, not experiencing healthy gospel community in a local church, or they're far away from God for whatever reason. And God has sovereignly put you in their life to share the gospel and show them the love of Christ. And hopefully you're having ongoing conversations with them about where they are spiritually, how much God loves them through his son Jesus. And in those conversations, maybe topics or questions have come up that you've discussed with them, or maybe they haven't. And so this is a good opportunity to ask them, hey, what questions or concerns or our confusions do you have about Christianity, about the Bible, about the gospel, about Jesus? Or maybe um, what questions do you have about how to take the Bible and apply it to some aspect of culture and society? In other words, if you could hear someone teach a sermon on blank, what does the Bible say about this? How does the Bible deal with this? What would that issue be? And you get into these conversations by saying something like, hey, our church is doing this series. They're wanting us to ask people who aren't part of our gospel community, our church, uh, to uh, put in suggestions and questions related to Christianity or culture, and they want to do teachings on these questions, these topics, and, uh, and then I get to invite you to come and listen to that teaching, and then we can continue this conversation later on. could be, how, how can Jesus be God and man? It could be, how can we trust that the Bible is God's word? It could be, um, how, did the miracles of the Bible really happen? It could be, what does the Bible say about divorce, suicide, global warming? Just whatever. And then when we actually teach it, because they are your friend, you can invite them to come and listen to continue the conversation. Now, this isn't the time for you to get your questions answered. I'll just, you know, I'm always wondering about this. Go ahead and ask that question now, like in your missional community or your DNA groups or see one of your pastors or missional uh, community leaders. Um, this series is being planned to encourage us to get into deeper gospel conversations with friends and to give you an opportunity to talk to your friends about church and invite them in. What topics will we cover in that series? Well, it depends on you. It might be one sermon series, shortest ever. It might go on and on, and we have to start it and stop it uh, over time. We'll see. But we'll let you know ahead of time what topics we'll cover on which Sundays you can invite these friends. This will also give you opportunity now to have deeper gospel conversations. I, I, I've been practicing this before I shared it with you. So I talked to one single mom in a business that uh, I go to as a chaplain and kind of explained it like I just explained it to you. We're doing this series. I want to ask people not in our church, you know, do you have any topic you'd love to hear somebody teach about? And she said... Uh, um, I'd like to hear somebody explain to me how I can teach my son about racism. And so my response is not, okay, I'll write that down, and uh, next year when we talk about it, uh, I'll invite you, you can come here. 
uh, what we would say about something like that. No, those conversations between me and her start now. And uh, this lady who needs gospel community in her life, hopefully God will, will call her to him before we ever do this series, either our gospel community or another gospel community. But it's a good opportunity to get into those conversations with people. We're announcing it now, so you have the rest of 2018 to submit these to us, pass them along to me, Kendrick, your MC leader. We're going to have a box somewhere at the palace that we'll set up each week where you can write them on a piece of paper and stick them in the box. Send us a text, email, we'll put it on the city. And after the year ends, we'll uh, make, a, make a plan and then share the schedule with you guys. And, uh, and then we can begin to walk through that in 2019. It'll start in February. Uh, so be praying for us as we put all that together and then go out and engage in these conversations with people who aren't uh, in this gospel community or who, who are far from God or are lost or running from God. Now, none of that counts as sermon time. So if you started your clocks, you can reset them and start them now. Genesis chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. Genesis 3. Each year around this time, we use this whole church teaching time to take a break from whatever book of the Bible we're studying together to walk through a series we call We Are the Crossing. It's our yearly vision series that helps us pull back and take some time to remember, why are we doing this? Why do we even exist as a church? Why are we pursuing what we're pursuing? Who are we? And what has God called us to do and be? The hope and prayer is not only would this help us stay out of unhealthy ruts that can happen as mission continues, you can get sometimes bogged down in the details or secondary issues, you lose sight of the primary purpose for which God has created and called you to, but our hope and prayer is also that it reignites a flame and passion for what we are chasing. Maybe for some, it ignites a flame and passion for the first time. Ah, now I see what this is about. Let's go do this. Why are we giving the time and energy and resources to see as many people as possible enjoy Christ by following him and being changed by his gospel? Because all of this flows from who God is and what God has revealed to us. Now, the, year, the way we're doing it this year is by helping us see how our story as individual believers and as a church is not the story, but part of the story that we are caught up in. By God's grace, God has created us, saved us, and called us to join him in this work. This work that he's been carrying out since eternity past and will be carrying it out into eternal, eternity future. A story that's so big and massive and encompasses literally the entire universe. Every single uh, particle of matter. But it's also so intimate, it involves how you love your wife, how you love your husband, how you love your kids, how you love your neighbors. It deals with every single fear, worry, and anxiety that you have every single day of your life. A story that's truly so grand that only the Most High, one true God, could write. So big and massive, it covers everything that needs to happen from galaxies that are too many to number and every single sparrow and every single hair on our head. It's a story that's big enough to deal with everything, but intricate enough to handle every small detail. And we saw last Sunday how this began with God and creation, and that creation was revealing the character and nature of God, His majesty, His power, His might, but also His love and the community of the Trinity, wanting, not needing, but desiring relationship with ultimately the pinnacle of His creation, mankind, by creating us uniquely in His image, distinct from all other aspects of creation. Everything was good, and the only thing that wasn't good, man being alone, 
God remedy by creating woman, and he gave both the task to be fruitful, multiply, rule and reign over creation as his image bearers, and to enjoy all that he has made. And then we come to Genesis 3. Understanding these first three chapters of the Bible are central to understanding the entire story of the Bible. So beginning in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all livestock and above All beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Unto Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife you have, and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, we are grateful for who you are and what you have been working out through all of history. We're thankful it did not begin with us and it does not end with us. We get to be a part of who you are and what you're doing by your grace. Help us to see our role in that today. Bring life, salvation, forgiveness, joy, hope, whatever is needed in every single heart in this room. Father, may you bring it today by your spirit and by your word for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. We're going to focus on two major aspects of God's story that's introduced in Genesis 3 that we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, our sin and God's salvation. Or if you're keeping track of the creation, fall, redemption, restoration narrative, it's fall and redemption. Every single human being who's ever lived and will ever live is affected by what we just read in Genesis 3. We all, because we're human, have inherited this sinful nature, this curse of sin. We live in a sin-cursed world because of what happened here in Genesis 3. We suffer the consequences of Genesis 3. The consequence of first, the fact that we are guilty. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve weren't just guilty before God. They were guilty, but they also knew that they were guilty. They now knew right and wrong and they now knew they were in the wrong. Never existed before this moment in Genesis 3. When you've done something wrong, our natural human instinct is to hide. And so they began to cover their nakedness. We lie, justify, give excuses, go in the dark, live alone, alone, withdraw from relationships, not show up in Sunday worship gatherings or around people who make us feel convicted because of what we know we're indulging in and engaging in. All conviction because of our guilt. We are also, secondly, the consequence of Genesis 3, shameful. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. In Genesis 2, man and woman were naked and unashamed. Now as sin enters creation, there is shame. And what unfolds through the rest of the chapter is that shame leads to blame. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. In essence, she's actually blaming God. You made the serpent. If you hadn't made the serpent, he wouldn't have been in the garden. He wouldn't have tempted me, and I wouldn't have sinned. So God, in essence, it's your fault. Or if you didn't create me this way, I wouldn't sin like this and feel shame. The third consequence of sin that we see in Genesis 3 is the fact that we are afraid. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is a very different picture of man's relationship with God as compared to the first two chapters where man and woman are enjoying each other. They're enjoying this relationship with God. They're enjoying this harmony, this love, this affection with each other and with God and all of creation. Now sin causes them to run in fear from God. Appropriate uh, fear of, uh, of the awe and the reverence of God because of His holiness and the fact that they are sinful. They're scared to be near God now. There's no joy. There's just terror. So, so get the seriousness of the situation. At this point, man separated from God for all of eternity. Cut off from relationship with God. There's good reason for them to be afraid. God told him in chapter 2, if you eat from that one tree, you will die. So pretending like we don't know the rest of the story... Just understanding what we have through Genesis 3.10, understanding the holiness and the justice of God, there is good reason for God to leave man and woman in their guilt. They should die. They should be cut off. Lucifer, the chief angel, had already rebelled against God and had been cast out along with other angels who rebelled against God from the presence of God in heaven. God had already judged angels who had rebelled against the way that he created them. So why not will he also now judge humanity? 
the pinnacle of creation. Why allow them to live? Why show any grace or mercy to them? Because he's God. God isn't just holy and just and righteous. He's also loving, gracious, and merciful. And God had determined in eternity past that he would have a different plan for humanity. That when they rebelled, as soon as sin entered creation, so would God step in and bring about the redemption and salvation of mankind. Not just here in Genesis 3, but throughout the rest of the Bible. And so see our sin, yes, but also see God's salvation. We sinned, we are guilty, we are filled with shame, and we are afraid of God. How does God respond to us? First, He pursues the guilty. Again, look at verse 9. But the Lord called to man and said to him, Where are you? Here we see for the first time the Father seeking out His children. God seeking out those who have deliberately disobeyed and rebelled against Him. And we see this Throughout Scripture, Abraham, an idolater, wasn't seeking God. God came after him. Moses, a fugitive, a Midian. God is seeking after Moses. Elijah, literally running from God and the task God had given him. God comes seeking after Elijah. We see Jesus doing this with the disciples in the Gospels. One of, one of the favorite pictures of the disciples in the Gospels is Mark 2.14, where Jesus calls Matthew, a tax collector, sitting on the side of the road. Jesus goes up to him and calls him to follow him, a tax collector that no Jewish rabbi would have desired to have as a follower of him. So corrupt. Over and over, we see the mission of Jesus, Luke 19.10, to seek and to save those who are lost. God seeks the guilty. He comes after us. Throughout Scripture, you see God's response to the guilty. In Luke, Leviticus chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, when God is setting up the offerings that will need to be given to cover up for sin, He says, when He realizes His guilt, this man who's committed this sin, in any of these matters and confesses the sins he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for that sin he has committed, a female from a flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Here, beginning in Leviticus, is God making a way to cover up the guilt, the sin guilt of mankind so that we could be in relationship with him, so that we wouldn't be cut off from him, so that we could come to him and know him and be in relationship with him. Ezra chapter 9 It's in the middle of your Old Testament, but chronologically it's at the end. Guilt is still a problem at the end of the Old Testament. Ezra 9, verse 6, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our sins, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. And then you get to this prayer in verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. The beginning of the Old Testament, the people of God plagued with guilt. The end of the Old Testament, people are plagued with guilt. So let's go to the New Testament. Jesus, in John chapter 8, is having these conversations with the religious leaders. They're always working to overcome their guilt. They have all these laws and all the rules that they're trying to keep to overcome their guilt, to make themselves right with God. 
And in John chapter 8, they're, they're having this dialogue with Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and says in verse 46, Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Here is Jesus coming on the scene in the book of John saying, I'm not sinful at all. This is a paradigm shift. Nobody's ever said this. There's never been anybody who's shown up to say this unless they're crazy. It here's Jesus saying, I'm not sinful. You can't find sin in me. And they tried and couldn't. He's coming on the scene as the first person who does not have the guilt problem we see in Genesis 3. 2 Corinthians 5, it's further spelled out. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteous of God. In other words, God poured out our guilt on innocent Jesus so that we could stand righteous, innocent before God. God throughout all of Scripture is taking man's guilt and making us innocent through what Jesus did. This is salvation. He's seeking after the guilty. There's nothing, there's no one in this room whose guilt is so great that God isn't coming after you to pursue you, to declare you innocent even though you're guilty. Not because of anything you've done to clean yourself up. You can't. But because of everything Jesus has done. He's taken the penalty for your sins so that you could have his righteousness so that in God's standing you could be not guilty even though you're guilty. This is salvation. This is incredible news. It's good news. Incredible news. Amazing news. This is our sin, his salvation. What does God do about our shame? Well, he he pursues after the guilty. For the shameful, he covers the shameful. In Genesis 3, going back to Genesis 3, what did Adam and Eve try to do when they realized their shame? They tried to make fig leaves and cover themselves up because they knew they were naked and ashamed. In verse 21, though, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Their clothing was inefficient, insufficient as a covering. God says, I'm going to make clothes for you, garments of skin. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is very subtle. You might miss this just reading through it the first time. But this is the first time physical death enters creation. Because here we have God taking the skin of an animal, an innocent animal that had to be killed so that God could have its skin, and fashioning clothes to cover the shamefulness of sinful humanity. He covers the shameful shameful through sacrifice. This is a theme that runs throughout the rest of the Bible. Genesis 8, Noah builds an ark. He's been saved from the flood. Him and his family and a bunch of animals. In verse 20, after the flood, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And what you see here in beginning to be spot out to the rest of Genesis and the rest of the first five books of the Bible is a sacrificial system where God would take the offering of an animal that will be used to, to in a sense, to cover over, or Leviticus uses the word atone, which literally means cover over the sins of his people so that they could be in God's presence. Because apart from these sacrifices, sinful people in the presence of a holy God don't belong. We, we have no place. We, we should just be immediately evaporated because God is that holy and just. But God makes a way for our sins to be covered, atoned, so that we could be in relationship with him. Isaiah 53, one of the greatest pictures in Scripture when it comes to the shame and the honor of God. It's a prophecy about Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 4. 
Talking about Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought his peace, us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he has done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Do you see the picture? Shame being put on Christ, not for his sins, but because of our sins. The very next chapter, Isaiah 54, in response, listen to what God tells his people. Verse 4, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. He has taken your shame away, and He has given you honor. He has identified with you. You are mine. I don't see you in your shame. I see you as my bride. I see you as the Holy One, my people. Isaiah 61, a few chapters later. Jesus quotes this in Luke 4, the beginning of his ministry. It sums up his ministry. Verse 1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The reversals are all happening because what Christ has done. Verse 7, instead of your shame, Isaiah 61, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. The guilty, the shameful will have honor and everlasting joy. What could possibly make this happen? Who's powerful enough to produce this in us? Especially when you see your own sins. You may not even feel worthy to be in this room, to be with God's people, to sit before his word, to sing these songs because you're overwhelmed by your sin. And God says, I've taken care of it through my son, Jesus. You're my people. I'm pouring out honor and glory for your joy on you because of Jesus. Who else can do this? We can't. He can. This is 
the good news of the gospel. And it doesn't end there, thankfully. Revelation 19. You've got a crowd of people gathering around singing praise to Jesus, giving honor to Him. Why? Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Who is the Lamb? Jesus. John tells us in John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. The Lamb has come. The wedding of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. What you've got is a picture of God's people not dressed in the stains of their sins, but dressed in bright linen, white, clean to wear. This is how God sees us all the time. This is who we are all the time. Revelation 21, the very last verse, verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter into the eternal state, heaven, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Notice it doesn't say only those who have done these things, but those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life who are depending upon the work of the Lamb to cover for all of their sins. In the very beginning of the Bible, man cannot cover over his shame by himself. He needs someone to do it for him. And God does it through an innocent animal, an innocent sacrifice to cover man's shame. We see it throughout the Old Testament. Thousands upon thousands of animals slain so that man's sins could be covered. When you get to the New Testament, God takes an innocent lamb, his own son. And he takes him and pours out the shame of our sin on Christ so that God can give us honor because of what Christ has done for us. He covers the shameful. He pursues the guilty. Lastly, what does he do for those who are afraid? He protects the fearful. He protects those who are afraid. Going back to Genesis 3, he protects the fearful. In Genesis 2, 17, God had told man, when you eat of this, you will surely die. However, when you get to Genesis 3, 20, Adam names his wife Eve. And what does Eve mean? Well, thankfully, he tells us. Eve means the mother of all living. That's a weird name to give this woman who just brought the curse of sin into creation and brought death into creation. Why in the world would Adam give her that name? Because Adam, by God's grace, already saw God's provision of the Redeemer, promised in Genesis 3, 15, when God is cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you want to kill a serpent, you cut off the tail or you cut off the head? Cut off the head. This seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent would bruise his heel, which is a picture of Calvary, the cross. So what we've got is, from the very beginning, even in our fear, God is protecting Adam and Eve and already bringing about a deliverer, a redeemer, to solve this problem. He goes on to protect them by banishing them from the garden. Why would God banish them from the garden? Well, it says there in verse 22, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Man, now in his sin-cursed state, it would be punishment and torture for man to live forever in this sin-cursed state. So God banishes them from the tree of life so that he won't live forever as an act of protecting his people. 
What we have as a result of that throughout the rest of the Bible is this fear of being in the presence of God because of our sin, which is a very real fear, a very real terror. Moses, a guy we hail as a hero of faith, God's seeking after him. I want you to look look at what God says to, to, to Moses in Exodus 3, 4. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. Moses walks by. He sees this bush that's burning on fire. It's not being consumed. And it says in verse 4, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It's too much. I don't belong in his presence. I can't look at him. It's, he's too holy. He's too amazing, too powerful. Later on in Exodus 20, after God gives his people the Ten Commandments, how do the people respond? Verse 18 and 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. After he's given them these commandments, which will be the basis of their relationship with him for the next several hundred years, they recoil in fear and terror. We we can't hear from him. We're going to die. He's that holy. We are that sinful. Revelation 6, another group of people in their sin, afraid of God. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Hiding from God. We can't get near God. But look at where the story ends in Revelation 22. Genesis 3, man and woman are cast out, banished from the garden, away from the tree of life. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Last time we saw the tree of life was Genesis 3. They had to be cut off. Now for the first time, it's back. Not to be cut off from, but to be enjoyed. Because now in this state, set free from the presence of sin, set free from the penalty of sin, set free from the power of sin for all of eternity, we can enjoy the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be a curse. It's gone. It's gone. This current state as it is, is not always how it's going to be. We are headed to something. History is just not cycles repeating itself for all of eternity. History is linear. It's headed to something. It's headed to this day. This day when we will be set free forever from the curse of sin. Sin has pervaded all the pages of people's lives throughout the Bible, but there's coming a day where there will be no more curse. Keep keep reading. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve Him. In the beginning of of verse 4 in Revelation 22, and they will see His face. We will no longer be afraid to look at Him in the face. 
We will be able to see His face, to look at Him and to, to know Him as He is. Our fear will be gone and turned into joy. That's the picture of our sin. That's the picture of His salvation. God's story, seeking the guilty, covering the shameful, protecting those who are afraid, and inviting them in. And all three of those components are essential to understanding salvation. Like sometimes I think that we have a tendency to believe maybe one of those, but we don't fully grasp all three of those. Like there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who know, yeah, I've been forgiven. I'm no longer guilty. I'm innocent from all of my sins. But they walk around in shame over their sins and believe they have to pay some kind of penance for their sins, even though Jesus has paid the price for your sins. You don't have to pay penance. He's not sending you a bill. Yeah, I love you, but you got to do these things for me to really love you. No, he's already done everything necessary. You, you don't have to grovel. You don't have to crawl. You don't have to beg. In Christ, you belong all the time. Or, or some people know their innocence uh, from, from the guilt, or maybe they know they're set free from the shame of sin, but they live in fear. They live in anxiety because they don't know that God has set them free from their fears, set them free from their anxieties. Jesus has come to remedy all of that through the gospel. This is our sin. This is his salvation. This is God's story. And we as a church are simply the most, the, the very basic essence of who we are. We are a people who have experienced and are enjoying this. We are a people who've been saved by Jesus, set free from the curse and the penalty of sin, to, to be the people of God in this sin-cursed world and to give the rest of our lives to go out and find as many people as we possibly can to see them set free from the penalty and the presence and the power of sin. That, in essence, is all we are. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. And we do this together because alone we're going to fail and quit. We need each other to do this together. We need each other to be spurred on, to be encouraged, to be held accountable, to, to pick us up when we're weak, to help carry the burdens through life, to sanctify us and see the, the full presence of Jesus Christ come through every aspect of our life. We can't do it alone. We have to do it together. The body of Christ, every member doing their part. So I remind you and I ask you this morning, this is God's story, but is it your story? This is God's story, but is it your story? In a little while, we're going to hear the story of someone who today is publicly saying, this, this is my story. I'm publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. And then after our worship gathering, we're going to head down the river and watch him publicly profess this reality through water baptism. And there may be someone here today who have yet to turn from your sins and trust in Christ, who have yet to come alive in Christ Jesus. And, and today, maybe the Spirit of God, the Word of God is working in you right now to say, you know what? I've just been religious. I've just been hanging on to the faith of other people. And today I realize I need this to be my faith. I need this to be my story. Today I want to turn from my sins and trust in Jesus to be my Savior. Maybe even today you say, I want to be baptized. I've never publicly proclaimed this to a group of people through baptism. I would encourage you, find, find me during the singing time, find Kendrick during the singing time, and let's talk about that. Let's, let's begin to examine, is today the day of your salvation? You can even be baptized today. That can definitely happen. You can publicly profess faith in Christ today. 
And that would be amazing because God has made you alive today. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are accomplishing this work in your people, through your people, to other people who don't know you yet. And maybe some of those people are here today. By your grace, your sovereign providential will, you have brought them into this building for such a time as this to hear the gospel, to believe in Jesus, to come alive in him. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here that's wrestling with this, struggling with this, it would overwhelm them with your love, your grace, your mercy, your truth, the reality of who Jesus is. They would see the horror of their sin, but they would also see how precious Jesus is, how, how mighty and strong Jesus is, and they can trust him, and they can come alive. For all of us, help us to have a deeper, bigger grasp of our sinfulness but an even bigger love of the forgiveness and redemption you've made possible through your son, Jesus. Help it to drive our worship, drive our devotion, drive the way we live every single day. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.